Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they reply, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This world rejected Christ, refused to see in him its own life and fulfillment, and since it has no other life but Christ, by rejecting and killing Christ, the world condemned itself to death. So writes Father Alexander Schmidt. He goes on to say its only re ultimate reality is death. And none of the secular eschatologies in which men still put their hope can have any force against the simple statement of Tolstoy, and after a stupid life there should come a stupid death. In its self-sufficiency, the world and all that exists in it has no meaning. And as long as we live after the fashion of this world, as long, in other words, as we make our life an end in itself, no meaning and no goal can stand, for they are dissolved in death. It is only when we give up freely, totally, unconditionally, the self-sufficiency of our life, when we put all its meaning in Christ, that the newness of life, which means a new possession of the world, is given to us. The world then truly becomes the sacrament of Christ's presence, the growth of the kingdom, and of life eternal. In rejecting and killing Christ, the world has condemned itself to death. Our gospel lesson this evening, though directly related to Israel's religious leadership and their rejection of Christ, is summed up very well in that statement by Father Schmidt. This parable, as you no doubt have already pieced together, is rooted in the prophetic tradition.
depiction of our Old Testament scriptures. It's about Israel, at least initially. God brought the descendants of Abraham out of slavery in Egypt and into the land of promise, just as he had sworn to their ancestors, and he gave them a covenant through Moses by which they could honor him and live a life of flourishing in this land of promise. That covenant included a series of incredible blessings for those who remain in covenant faithfulness with God, and it also predicted incredible destruction for those that willfully continued in covenant unfaithfulness. And it's that unfaithfulness and destruction that plays out over the rest of the Old Testament. Throughout Israel's history, God sent prophets to come and call them back to himself. And very often, the prophets would have the harshest critiques for the religious leaders of the day. It was the, the temple workers that were being criticized the most, essentially saying that they had become blind guides, leading the people astray, telling them whatever they wanted to hear. And as we see in the parable, as what happened in real life, so often the prophets of God were maligned, abused, beaten, and sometimes killed. Here again, as with the parable of the workers that we looked at a few weeks ago, who join in the workforce late in the day, we see the incredible mercy of God. Do you remember in that parable? The, the, the figure of the Father would go out again and again and again to call people to come and work in his vineyard. So in this parable, time and time again, God sends his messengers to people who are rebelling against him. And time and time again, he calls out the message of repentance and faith, inviting the people back into loving relationship with him. And time and time again, the people refused. In the parable, the plot comes to a head when the landowner sends his son, saying, They will respect my son. The irony with which Jesus and Matthew have set up this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees is just absolutely incredible. It's such skillful writing, and just the way that it works out is incredible. Jesus is riffing off of what should have been a fairly well-studied text that we had read for us this evening from Isaiah. It's a song about God's vineyard that had been set up in every way to flourish. Did you hear all that imagery? The landowner picks a fertile hillside. He does everything that can be done for this vineyard, and yet it fails to bring forth fruit to reflect that flourishing. What the religious leaders should have known is what Isaiah says very clearly. The vineyard was Judah and Israel. And in fact, the very people that, that the Pharisees in the, in, after the parable is told condemn as wretches, deserving a wretched end, for doing what? For killing the son. Those tenants that were running the place, well, that's them. This is like a textbook definition of irony. They're condemning themselves with their own words after hearing this story. The very one telling them the story is the son that they were about to throw out of the vineyard and kill. And as the words of the Father make it clear, you would have to be insane to not respect the Son. Did you catch that little legal insanity in their plot in the parable? Just killing the heir doesn't actually make the property yours. It just makes you in jail or executed. It makes no sense. It's absolute insanity. And then Jesus quotes to them from the Psalms. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The images here would have been immediate for Jesus' hearers, his listeners, because they were in the middle of this massive temple building project that was going on for decades. 
And so they would have been very familiar that just as the actual masons would be inspecting the stonework, looking for the perfect stone to set as the initial corner of the building, right? It would be square and flush, that the building would last. So the religious leaders, Jesus is saying, had been building a spiritual house, supposedly inspecting the stones, the people under their care. Jesus is telling them that the cornerstone, the thing upon which God's entire dwelling place with man rests, is the same stone that was rejected by them. It's staggering. The priestly builders have rejected the very thing that they need if they're going to have any sort of lasting edifice, any sort of dwelling place with God. We're going to circle back to this in a minute. As Jesus ends this discourse through which we've been waiting these past few weeks, if you remember in this first parable about the vineyard, he's been locked in this argument with the religious leaders about his authority, right? And what the kingdom of God means in relationship with his authority. I think it's become obvious, hasn't it? This is not cuddly teddy bear Jesus. Therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed, ground into powder. And then he stops talking. And in many ways, the entire world has not stopped tripping over the stumbling block of Jesus Christ. How could God become incarnate? To learn language? To wear a diaper? How could he get dragged outside the camp to the place of uncleanness and condemnation and be brutally killed, surrounded by criminals? What kind of God gets spit on and slapped in the face but doesn't say a word? What is this weakness? What is this humiliation? And yet this is the God that Christianity proclaims. This is why I believe that faith is a gift of God and a complete miracle in the human person because Jesus looks nothing like any of us would have expected him to look. In fact, in many ways, he's the exact opposite of what we might expect. But to stumble over him in this life is to have a life that is broken to pieces. It's to reject grace and to reject mercy. And the heat of his love is so strong that if we are not found in him when he comes again, it's as if we will just disintegrate before such purity and grace, unable to accept it, will be crushed. In a certain sense, what Jesus is talking about in this lesson that we had read for us this evening has already happened. The kingdom was indeed ripped from the hands of the religious leaders of Israel, and in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed as it had never been destroyed before, bringing an entire end to Israel's temple system that had stood at the center of her life for centuries. And the kingdom of God was, in fact, given to a people, the church, a new nation made up of Jews and Gentiles who had placed their trust in this Messiah, this Jesus, and had been baptized in the triune name of God. And I think this is where we have to start doing a little extra work, because it's not enough to say, oh, Matthew was writing this to the early church as sort of a verbal record of victory by Jesus and an offer of this authoritative setup for the church, people who have received the kingdom, right? 
oh, bad, bad Israel, but we're all safe. Now, there is something to that. You can't get around the fact that, that Jesus is saying very clearly to the religious leadership of Israel that they have completely missed the point and that irrevocably the kingdom is being taken away. But I think what is also happening in this text for us is that we are also being given a warning about how easy it is to fall into disbelief of God's goodness. As I said last week, the vineyard is the trysting place of God. That is still true in this lesson, no matter how harsh the words of Christ may sound. The vineyard is still the place where God romantically rendezvous with his people. It's still a place of love. It's the place where God comes and calls his bride to join him in fellowship. And Israel was meant to have this intimate fellowship. Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests, reflecting God's glory out of the world and bringing the world back into relationship with God. But Israel failed to commit herself to the Lord. And in so doing, was unable to behave priestly in the world. So this task has now been given to the church. That's why Peter says we are a royal priesthood. We are the stones being built up into the place of God's dwelling in the world. We are the vineyard. Therefore, we must be the place that is bearing the fruit of the kingdom. That's what that intends. To be the vineyard means to be people that bear fruit of the kingdom. Well, okay, what's the fruit of the kingdom? I have good news and bad news. The good news is actually really simple. Repentance and faith. The fruit of the kingdom is repentance and faith. It is a life of repentance and faith. It's absolutely simple. But it's not easy. This life of consistent recalibration and retrust requires us to keep company with Christ in his church. That alone is messy enough. But to live a life of repentance and faith for, faith for some of us is going to require celibacy in the midst of a world that assumes that life without sex isn't really life. You're not actually living. For some of us, it's going to require a radical generosity in the midst of a world that is so incessantly consuming it doesn't even recognize greed anymore. For a lot of us, it's going to mean actually adopting another person's way of being in the world, following someone else in a world that demands self-expression as the only route to freedom. And for all of us, it will require a repudiation of self-sufficiency and perceived autonomy. Repentance and faith requires a repudiation of self-sufficiency. In other words, it feels an awful lot like dying. It feels like taking up your cross, like losing your life that you may find it. And I think this is what St. Paul is getting at in his letter to the Philippians that we heard read this evening. He's imploring the Philippian Christians to follow his example. His example being one who had every reason to place confidence in himself. We just got finished saying that in that letter. If you remember Philippians 3, he says, If anyone has reason to boast in the flesh, I have more, right? He has every reason to have confidence in himself. But since being struck blind by the glory of Christ, Paul has considered all things as garbage, words I can't even say in the pulpit, worthless, utter refuse, a total loss compared with knowing Christ. That's it. That's the only thing for him. Our reading began with Paul saying that he was pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called him, heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
pressing on toward the prize is Paul's way of summing up, which he just said prior to this, which is this. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. That's the life of repentance and faith. It's simple, but it's not easy. Do you see that when we say over and over here that those who have been baptized and have placed their faith in Christ are hidden with Christ in God, right? We say that all the time here. What we're saying is, this isn't just about a legal transaction on our behalf, right? It's not just you over there and God over here and him saying, all right, Doc, it's clear, you can go home. It's not just about having your sins forgiven, although somebody shout amen, they are, right? Amen. Your sins are forgiven, but it's not just about that. It is about being brought into the divine life. It's about participation in Christ. That's what Paul's getting at in his letter to the Philippians. And it is this participation that is required if we are going to actually be witnesses for Christ's kingdom. If we're going to be citizens of his kingdom, we have to be participants in Christ, in his suffering, in his death, so that we can hope to attain his resurrection. Here's what I mean by that. Telling people that Jesus died for their sins in a place like Portland makes about the same impact as telling them what your favorite coffee shop is. Right? Especially if you say it's Starbucks, because they're kind of looking at you. That's weird. I don't know what that means. Why would you say that? But when you understand that Jesus is the cornerstone, right? The only thing upon which any form of life can be built. The cornerstone who was rejected by the world builders. When you understand that, when you understand that he is the stone from Daniel chapter 2, you guys all have that memorized, right? Okay, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream, okay? And he tried, he gets all of his wise men around him and he gets them to tell him what the meaning of his dream is. But this time, Nebuchadnezzar, they don't make any of its king. He's realized, I'm not going to tell them what I dreamed. Because if I don't tell them what I dreamed, I'm going to know for sure if they're actually telling me something that's real, right? So he says, I won't even tell you what the dream was, but you have to tell me what it means. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I think the lesson here is don't work for kings, right? <laughs> so Daniel has the dream revealed to him by God, and he goes to save the lives of the other wise men, and he explains it to the king. And he tells the king that the dream was about world kingdoms coming into power. And these kingdoms are becoming more and more sophisticated and more and more powerful. And they're all portrayed in this image of a statue. And the statue is made of all these various kinds of metals and clay. And it goes from sort of brute strength to more precious metals as it goes along. But then there is this stone cut out of a mountain, not made by human hands. And that stone in the dream comes and demolishes the statue. And then the stone becomes a huge mountain that fills the entire earth. Christ is that stone. Christ is a stone not made from human hands that becomes a mountain and fills the entire earth. I think the message for our fellow Portlanders is Kim Jong-un got you down? Trump or Putin or whoever got you worried? The kingdom of Christ is going to demolish all human kingdoms and all of those who have set themselves up as enemies of his cross will find that their destiny is destruction. But see, it's, it's just right there. 
It's right there in Paul's phrasing. It's those that stand as enemies to the cross of Christ. Jesus does not out-macho world powers. He simply doesn't. The cross is a place of weakness. It is a place of suffering. It is a place where life is given as a sacrifice to bring life to many. This is completely contrary to the way that the world does business. And I think here's where we can bring it back down to the local level. It's not an accident that Christianity in America has become syncretistic with American civil religion and wildly consumeristic, and at the same time has systematically obscured the meaning and practice of the sacraments. Those two things are related. Okay? In baptism, the picture is one of being buried. It's being brought into death. We should not hide that. That should not be covered up or done away with. Not only that, but in the vows for baptism, we ask those who are coming to be baptized to renounce Satan and all of his works. This is not just an outward expression of an inward reality. This is a transfer of citizenship from one kingdom to another. This is about being moved out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. It is all about life flowing out of death through the participation in Christ's death and resurrection. That's what the sacrament of baptism is all about. And it should lead us to understand that the Christian life is one of dying, taking up our cross and following Christ in faith and repentance every single day. Similarly, in the Eucharist, all of the words and the images have to do with life through death. These things should not be obscured or done away with. They're there to form us in a deep way to understand our vocation in Christ. On the night that he was betrayed and handed over to death, right? That's how the prayer starts. This is my body given for you. It's sacrifice. This is my blood shed for you. Every week in the fraction, we break the bread and we say, the Lamb of God, right? The Passover Lamb. All of this is revealing to us that we are dealing with a very different kind of king in a very different kind of kingdom. And so when Paul says that those who are walk as enemies to the cross of Christ will be met with destruction, he is not saying that God is somehow going to outmacho the rest of the world. He is saying that the love and mercy of Christ will so undo those people who are unable to accept grace that they will have been destroyed by it. It's a message of love and grace all the way through. And so wherever you have been, whatever you have done, this week or this decade, the message is the same. Repent. Stop thinking that your attempts at life on your terms are going to save you. Stop thinking that you can finagle your way out of it. Stop thinking that you have the power to get yourself set straight. Turn around. And I'm sorry, but what happened with the psalm is a perfect example, right? We didn't just keep going. We stopped, we went back to the beginning, we turned around, and we started again. And it made all the difference. That's repentance. That is an amazing picture of repentance. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in Christ. And in trusting in Christ, realize that 
Nothing more is needed. Did you catch that line in the song about his vineyard? What more could be done for my vineyard than I have already done? Friends, you have been given everything you need in Christ to live a Christian life. Everything. Absolutely everything. All that is needed for you is to repent and believe again. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.